Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Okasanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Retirementor podcast. I'm delighted today um, to have a, an incredible guest um, today. Um, just before we, we start the, the show, can I just say, if you've been listening to the, to the last two episodes, give us a review on Apple Podcast and let us know what you think. I am very excited um, about my guest today, um, someone I've known in the industry um, as a leading light of our profession for, for many, many years. I'm joined today by Alan Smith, who is the CEO of Capital Asset Management, a boutique wealth management firm in London. Alan, welcome to the show, sir. Hi, Abraham. Nice to see you and thanks very much for having me. Tell us a little bit about the firm, Capital Asset Management, as it, it, it exists today. That was, you know, the, the, the brief background is I, I, I worked in, in large corporate in, a, in, a, in a, one of what I guess is now one of the largest asset management groups in Europe for um, quite, a, quite a while. Well, for 14 years, my, my, I always say I've only had two jobs other than my paper round, so three including my paper round. And um, I, yes, I started the firm and literally as we... Um, you know, the, the term you refer to, you know, one man band, sole trader, IFA. It was myself and a PA back in the days when you actually, you know, dictated letters and you, uh, you had somebody answer the phone and all that sort of stuff. Um, and we were, you know, an absolute raw startup that's, um, you know, one room above a shop in Victoria in London. Um, but what I did to get going was there was an, there was an advisor I knew and effectively I, I, I bought his client bank. Um, it was an interesting one that, that you know, some of the, the viewers or listeners will, um, you know, I suppose, be interested to know how this structure comes about and how to, you know, where value lies in businesses, because I was able to buy this business at, at a very low cost. The reason it was a low cost is because in those days, there was very little embedded value because there was very little re, you know, traditional recurring revenue in the business. So effectively what I bought was a list of clients. That's really all, all it was. There was no sort of formal ongoing, there was some trail commissions as, the, as, as was in, the, in those days, but not a great deal, deal else. But that, I think the one thing that you need to do when you're starting a business is you just need some clients. You need some people to, um, to, to help and to service that will pay you something to keep going. So that's what it was, Abraham. It was a, a raw startup business with some ambition that I had. I'd, I'd, I'd sort of been in the industry for a while by then, and I'd looked around and I'd seen my version of what I would call best practice, what, um, what, I, what some firms were doing really well. And I thought if I could cherry pick some of the best ideas from firm A and then blend them with firm B and firm C and firm D and, and put it together my own sort of approach, we'd have something quite worthwhile. That's, that's the brief history. As we speak today, we are, we're a firm of chartered financial planners. We've got a team of qualified, chartered, and in the main certified financial planners, you know, highly qualified financial planning experts. Um, the team is structured in, we operate on a modular basis in terms of, we call them pods. So a pod would be a lead advisor, you know, financial, you know, generally an experienced 
well-qualified financial planner supported ably by a, well, we call them associates. Don't love the term power planner for some reason, but a power planner in generic terms uh, and also an administrator. And, uh, and, and, and everyone's on, either, they're either, you know, qualifications are important, techn technical competence is important. So they're also at or well on their journey to becoming, um, you know, high, you know, well, well qualified. So we have three pods in the business. Um, one has one has got two, got three people, and one's got four in it. And, and that's effectively that's the core of the business. I, I've although I'm still authorised personally, um, I, I haven't been doing direct client work for some years now, which is a whole other conversation as well. Uh, I took a decision that if I wanted to sort of think more about um, growth and strategy and other things. Um, do, doing day-to-day -day work with clients was, was just going to be a challenge for me ongoing. So we've evolved that. And I am more in that sort of um, strategic visionary type type role. And other than that, so the, the, as, we, as we speak today, we're a team of 15 people. Um, headlines are, I mean, we, we don't have thousands of clients. We've got about 240, 245 families. And I know everyone likes to quote these numbers. I'm, again, I'm not a big fan of it, but it's a metric the industry loves. It's assets under management, about 370, 375 million assets under management at the current time. So average, average family assets, uh, about one and a half million, obviously with some outliers um, on either side of that. But that's our kind of, sort of core business. So, you know, we remain a, a, a boutique planning-led um, professional advisory business. Brilliant introduction. Thank you very much for that, Alan. Th this is this is fascinating, and and actually, um, you know, something that I've been thinking a lot about um, recently. This is a challenge for a lot of advisors, making that shift away from day to day client facing, um, you know, client winning work to more of an executive leadership role. How have you found that journey? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a huge challenge, particularly for any firm that's got ambition to scale and grow the business because there is only so many hours in the day mm. and your, your time uh, gets allocated. You know, clients always come first. So that, that, that can be a challenge when there's not enough time in the day to look at some of the other things. You mentioned the book. I mean, I, I read um, a book just when I was starting up, which again, very well known, uh, book, but I'm surprised by the number of people who are running businesses that have never read it, but it's called The E-Myth. The E-Myth. Um, and the E in, in that stands for entrepreneur. And the, 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 the concept, which I completely agree with, is that people like me and many, many others in, in financial services, many other um, industries and businesses, we, we walk away from a large corporate environment where we show up and we get paid and get a salary, and we get, maybe get a company car and a pension scheme, things that I had in those days. And we leave it to set up our own business and we end up working for the worst boss in the world, which is ourselves. <laughs> and we end up just doing everything. I mean, you do everything. So they talk about there are three roles in running a business. There's the entrepreneur, who's that, that, that role, that visionary, the person that had, you know, the, the balls and everything else to go and set up their own firm and, and, and effectively not rely on anyone else to pay for their, uh, their, their, um, you know, their salary and so on. Um, so there's the entrepreneur, there's the manager who's managing things and getting the tax returns filed and getting you know, negotiating with landlords and so on. And there's the technician who actually shows up and does the work, who does the advice and meets the clients and so on. 
And that's why it's the, the, the myth, because the vast majority, that's obviously book written in the US, but it would be the same in the UK and around the world. The vast majority of people who, who would claim to be an entrepreneur, and they are, because they, they have taken a risk and they've set up a business, but they tend to spend most of their life doing the technician work. They just show up and they do. They, you know, if you're a financial planner, you do the financial planning. If you're a hairdresser, you do the hairdressing. If you're a plumber, you do the plumbing, versus having the concept of, of growing a business and having other people who are probably better than you are at it. Um, to employ them to do those those various other important roles within the business. And then I sort of got that and I, I, I got the concept. Um, and it really was because I was always quite ambitious. I wanted to evolve. I wanted to grow the business. And I, and I was, I mean, I was, I was pretty dumb really because I couldn't work out why I was really busy, but I couldn't work out how we weren't growing. You know, you look at our, our revenue and our accounts over a year or two, I think we're absolutely flatlining. What the hell is going on? And you realize that the, the problem was me. I was the bottleneck in the business because I was, I simply didn't have enough resource and time and, and frankly, energy to allocate to opportunities, partnerships, joint ventures, various other marketing initiatives, because I was just showing up every day with a really busy diary. You know, literally, I had about 80 clients myself looking after, plus I was doing the kind of management stuff and, and doing um, team reviews and hiring and, and dealing with our office location and property and so on. So it was pretty flat out. So eventually you have to come to a decision. You either say, I am, I love the financial planning. I hear this a lot. I love working with clients. I've never want to change that. That's why I came into the industry. And if you are that, then you need to hire someone else, an operations person, a managing director, that type of role to deal with this, the other, the other um, parts of, of the overall operation. Or as it did in my case, you say, I'm going to step back and I did it over a period of time, didn't do, didn't flick a switch and do it overnight. Because obviously, you know, again, clients come first, the client relationships, the people that I'd known and kind of grown up with. Um, it was important that their expectations were managed. So, but I realized that was the direction of travel I had to take. Fortunately at Capital, and it's been the case from day one, one thing, whether initially maybe more by luck, I mean, now we're a bit, a bit more intentional about it, but we've always hired in the main really good people. I've really always hired and I was able to speak to my colleagues and my advisory colleagues and work out a plan such that they would take over more of the clients that I was working with up until that point. Um, and, we'd, and we would just, we would do a kind of handover, if you like, over a period of time to free up more of my time to get behind some of the other initiatives that we all agreed were important to us as a business. So that's, that's what we did. Some people I knew said I was absolutely mad and it wouldn't be the first or last time I'm getting accused of that <laughs> because there's, there's a very kind of, I call it a scarcity mindset that exists, which is what if you give all your best clients to your colleagues and they leave and take all the clients with them? Yeah. And my answer to that was, well, if they do, they do. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of cover ourselves with all the appropriate um, legal policies and so on. But I, I don't think it ever comes to that because if you've got the right people in place, that's never going to be an issue. And frankly, if I don't, if I just have that scarcity mindset and I wrap my arms around the clients that, and I never want to change, then we are done. We can no longer grow. We're, we're, we've reached capacity. And I think right. this is a challenge for other advisors up and down the country, particularly as we, as we've moved firmly in, we're, we're in, we're in a, we've moved from a sales business, sales industry to a, to a service profession. And therefore, clients are signing up and they are receiving a promise and, and, you know, and a legal expectation and guarantee to show up and deliver services on an ongoing basis. Well, there's only, you know, you divide however many days you want to work per year by the number of clients you want to work with. And it doesn't take many, in my opinion, 
And for us, we reckon the number's about 75, for example. For others, it might be more. I'm hoping with technology, it might be more in future. But if you want to have a meaningful relationship with a client, it's about that number, uh, we think. So we just got a bit intentional about our data and numbers and migrated clients across to, to my colleagues, which then freed up the opportunity for me then to sort of think about taking the company to the next level. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. So, so just, I'm curious about this actually, um, in terms of, talk to me about um, sort of the, the ownership structure of the business. It's unusual in financial planning business to, you know, I think you guys are a PLC and, you know, and, Maybe I get there wrong, but but how how is that all sort of set up? Um, is it is it still you as the as the as the main owner of the of the business? Are there external sort of shareholders? What does that look like? Yeah, no, it, it is the the, the the PLC thing that, that we're not a PLC or anything like it. There, there was there was a sort of there was an opportunity at one point to do some other um, sort of clever uh, funding and so on, which which we didn't do at all in the end. That, so that's a kind of legacy of something. We're not a PLC. We're, we're a traditional limited company, limited liability business, um, not a partnership as such. Uh, at this moment in time, I, I'm the, the, the primary, the only shareholder. Um, we are absolutely um, expecting to roll out um, some equity participation for the others, particularly those that have been around for a long time and build some sort of, because I really got to the stage now and, and we can talk about it because it's, it's being very, I think that it's important to be intentional about what the, where the future lies, mm. personally and professionally and, and as a business. And we're at the level now where we are, um, despite being a scrappy teenager, we're a, we're a mature business and we've got a you know, predictable revenue stream. And therefore we could in some degrees that like many other firms and, and individuals and so on, and, and they're perfectly right if it suits them to do so, you default to being a classic lifestyle business, predictable revenue, decent clients. You'd always get a few referrals every year, show up, do the thing, do the right thing, help people, be professional. And, you know, in normal times, go and play golf on Friday afternoon, yeah. whatever it is you want to do. Um, and we chose, we, my colleagues chose not to do that. It's, we're almost in the last 12 months or so, paused for breath a little bit. And, and the, the lockdown is to some degree, that's been a positive because we've had a bit more time you're not running on a hamster wheel and running a million miles an hour. So a bit, bit more time to be thoughtful and reflective and consider what the next, the next step is. And myself and my colleagues have agreed we want to get our, our shoulder behind a very focused growth strategy. And, and I'm all in favor of making sure that we, as one of my colleagues says, that we share the love. Right. That future, future commercial success of the business um, will be shared amongst um, the people who help create it. So we are, we are looking at a number of um, interesting opportunities around uh, equity ownership within, within the company. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much. So you've been um, an advocate, shall we say. You've been a, a, a loud voice um, on, the, on the subject of, you know, flat fee charging. Um, and, and I think that, you know, in the last couple of years, you migrated to, the, to this approach. Talk to me about why, A, you think that flat fee charging is superior to the traditional AUM, and um, give us your thoughts on it, and, and let's unpack that a little bit. <laughs> I wondered if you'd come, <laughs> come around to that. The most contentious subject ever in history, it would appear to me. 
Um, and I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've been banging a drum for a while and then I go a bit quiet on it and I upset one or two people and I get almost get bored of hearing my own voice. But, you know, it is, it is what it is. And I think that any, any profession in any industry, in any company or individual should challenge conventional thinking, should ask itself, oneself, myself, whatever it is in life, this was, this was the right way to do things. Is there a better way? Is there something that seems more logical, more sensible? And, uh, and that's what we, my, myself and my colleagues did. And actually time flies, it was six years ago that we really, really got into it and really started debating it in a, in a, in a huge level. And what the fundamental behind this really starts, it's not about one's better than the other. It's just, it's just not. Um, and I get the, 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 the ad valorum model, it, it's just, it, it's, it's beauty is its simplicity. Mm. And you don't really have to discuss it too much. It's pretty straightforward. And yes, there's winners and losers, but hey, that's, that's life kind of thing. Mm. But I think because we are a group of people who are thoughtful and, and introspective, and we are always striving to try to be a, you know, a little bit better, a bit more innovative, we, um, we started considering where the value lies in terms of the proposition that we deliver. And we just, we had known for years, and most people who are doing this for any length of time know the real value is in the concept of planning. It's about strategy, it's about project management, it's about you and the family. Where are you today and what does a, a life well lived look like? How can we manage your sort of your financial anxieties and your concerns and so on? It's not about money management. And the industry, and it is an industry, has historically placed all the emphasis on money management. Abraham, you and I know, and I've been saying for years, I, mean, you know, I think we've got a, a and I, again, I, don't, I choose my words carefully. We've got a world-class investment proposition that we run in-house and I stack it up against anything out there. But we don't make a song and dance about it because it's largely commoditized and we can outsource that. We can buy it for pennies, frankly. Mm. So we've often felt the real value was in the, and the client, as I say, the clients tell us if the value is in this aspect over here, why on earth are we charging percentage of a client's pension fund or something like that? Just, it's illogical. It's illogical on so many levels. And so we began to discuss and debate that further. I talk about value alignment. And then you begin to think as well, well, um, there's, there's an element of um, cross-subsidy that exists that we wanted to minimize. If, you know, so you basically your wealthier clients pay more for the same service by and large than your less affluent clients. Again, we started thinking of analogies. Imagine you went to have a knee operation. You go along, you get a private appointment at Harley Street, and the surgeon says to you, or his, or his secretary, or whoever it is, says, um, okay, first couple of questions, how much are you worth? How much money have you got? It's, well, why, what's that going to do? Oh, because we have a policy here of charging you double if you're more wealthy than our other clients for the same operation by the yeah. same surgeon at the same time. Mm. But also because if he messes up, you might sue him, and, and there's more risk, or whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, so that was, that was this sort of strange conflict of interest that, it, that existed. Another thing was um, that we wanted to work with clients where every single client was profitable. Oh. And, and therefore, the model that exists at the moment allows effectively wealthier clients with, with larger funds on a percentage of their assets to effectively subsidize the costs of servicing a less wealthy client. So... We, we discussed and debated that and we, we, we effectively flipped a switch overnight and it was, it was about this time of year, a few years ago. And we said, as of now, for all new clients, all new prospective clients, this is how we're going to position it. This is how we're going to work it out. 
we have built a, you know, it sounds very grand, a proprietary um, pricing model, pricing tool, but it's, 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 it's fundamentally based on a couple of things. Our, our price, our, our retainer fee differs based on a number of issues, but primarily around things like value that we deliver, uh, complexity, uh, and a little bit of risk as well attached to it as well. There are some situations where, where we are taking on more risk than we'd otherwise do. So there's, there's a tiny little bit of premium for that. So we've, we effectively price work um, pretty much indiv- uh, individually within, um, within certain bands. And everyone knows it, everyone understands it. And I can tell you, Abram, from a, 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 again, a sort of a, a commercial viewpoint, increasingly these things often take far longer than i I thought overnight the world was going to move to our way of thinking of course it doesn't it takes forever it takes years and somebody famous said you know uh, change just seems to take forever then all it happens overnight or something like that and and i just sense that there's a bit of momentum it's another strange thing about lockdown we've taken we've had four new inquiries in the last week all high net worth all currently clients of you know, what I would call large discretionary wealth management companies, you know, household names to you and I, and all of them in, in, a, in a significant way, because of the current circumstances we find ourselves in with more time in our hands, frankly, mm. locked at home, um, they're beginning to you know, get out the files and the folders and the presentations that they've been seeing before and, and then beginning to identify, hang on a minute. And so, we've just had a, a real upswing in the number of inquiries from new prospective clients. And the primary reason they've got in touch with us is because they're unhappy with the this, this style, the structure and the amount of the fee structure that they, that they pay. Now, and the last thing I want to I'll say on, on this is there's a misconception that, that, that we're all about cheapness. It's just so not about our, our flat fee retainers in many instances will be higher right. than a percentage base. However, they will be aligned to the value that we deliver. Um, and it, to me, it's just, it's, you know, I, I just, if, if we were starting, the whole industry was starting from scratch tomorrow, mm. no one would come up with a percentage of assets model. It makes no sense, not for the client and actually not for the advisory firm either. I mean, for goodness sake, during lockdown, for early stage of COVID, IFA firms up and down the country were having to furlough staff mm. and make people redundant because their revenue had fallen. Nothing, there's no one's fault. It wasn't, it wasn't anyone's fault that we had this pandemic. But all of a sudden, people are losing their jobs because the revenue model employed by a, a firm is not resilient. It's not sustainable. So that, that's, the, you know, again, would you start, for, if you started from scratch, would you start a business with its revenue stream that was predicated on something over which you've got absolutely no control, which is the capital markets? That's you just it would be it would be nonsensical to try to pitch that to a you know to an investor, a, a VC investor or something. We've got this model and this is how we get paid. And every now and again it falls 20%. Now let's get a word from our sponsor. I'm excited to be joined by Kate Bachbari, who is the enterprise business development manager at Timeline. Kate, what makes Timeline different than other planning? technology out there? Decumulation for one. You know, we we often look at retirement planning journeys and we almost break them into two parts. One is, you know, the building blocks of a journey. And then two is looking at the best way to withdraw that. And, you know, is that annuities, is is X, Y, and Z. So for me, I think the starting point is understanding that other planning solutions out there are not built for a decumulation strategy. And why do I say that? 
I think it's natural for everybody to categorise tools and solutions. They see a retirement calculator as an example or a chart or a particular process flow and they lump it into a cash flow modelling um, piece of kit when actually the outputs can be incredibly different. And what do I mean by that? Well, actually, Timeline, for example, takes 100 years of historical data and it reruns and stress test scenarios to work out the best way for a client to maximize their outputs. And when you look at other cash flow modelers out there, they don't do that. They work on normally assumptions data. Um, for example, they don't illustrate sequence risk. They don't look at longevity, which is a key part to actually understanding what does even the retirement journey look like? Because without looking at ONS data, that can almost be accused of a finger in the air scenario where people just don't know. People are living longer. So how do we truly plan and understand that? We look at lots of different ways that, you know, um, asset allocations, for example, and how that impacts an investment plan understanding risk you know one's risk appetite may be actually very different to the asset allocation within their investment so i think when we start looking and comparing at other cash flow tools out there timeline comes at it from a very um data focused research application around what does that solution and strategy need to look like to ensure that they're facing deaccumulation this is a, a fascinating subject to me and you know I, I go back and forth on the subject you know there, there are advisors um you know good advisors who are using this um you know AUM model and and, of course. and, yeah. and i i sort of think you know i sort of ask on one hand and sort of say well you know um you know the, the as you said the beauty of the AUM model is it's simple it's, you know, so advisors will say, to, you know, why complicate it? You know, if I can say, give you a pretty reasonable basis of, look, you know, 1% of assets makes sense. We don't need to com complexify anything, you know, easy does it, right? Um, there is that. There is the issue of um, actual sort of, you know, revenue growth, um, you know, I'm quite, you know, they might say, well, I'm quite happy for that, for the growth of my revenue to be tied to some extent or to a large extent, you know, to the, to the capital market, you know, we say to the clients, we're sitting on the same side of the fence, especially during, um, you know, the occasional temporary, temporary decline in the capital market, we can say, well, you know, you're feeling pain, I am feeling pain, we're kind of in it together, sort of thing. Yeah, but, so, but, you, but that, that, that's just not logical, because that's not, well, why would you, why would you be in it together? Uh, it just doesn't make, I get it from a, I can talk, and I've got, I've had received criticism and I've got thick skin, it doesn't bother me in the slightest, but it's, it's fair, it's a fair point people have made. Yes, but Alan, you, it's like I'm an ex-smoker or something, you know, I used to do it one way, <laughs> I used to do it and now I do it a different way and all you smokers are, are make me sick or something. Um, because when I built a business uh, up on percentage of assets basis, but, you know, just, just because you've done that doesn't mean you, you, you're not capable of rethinking evolution and change. And I don't get this, we're on the same side of the table because, again, but it does come back to this fundamental. I can still almost believe in a basis points model if you are some sort of, you know, real alpha-seeking hedge fund type thing and you've got a track record and you, you say, well, you know, if you give me more money and I make you more money, that's what we do. 
But the planning profession, this is where I operate in, and a lot of other people I, I know, and, they, and, every, and I have to say, I have lots and lots of off-the-record conversations with some of the people that you were talking about and mm. you're, you're mentioning. And a lot of them are saying, I get it, it caught, of course. But the, 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 the disruption in my business, clients aren't complaining, so why, why would we even bother? And yeah. I get that. I get that. We, we just, and it's not the first time as a company we've done it, we'd like to just <laughs> disrupt ourselves on a regular basis. It, our life, in many respects, would be quite simpler. It would be simpler if we just didn't ever change anything. And, and, and yeah, no, we had no complaints from clients. There was no, it wasn't. But it was just a sense of this is this is how this is this is about us, and it's not about anyone else. But it was, it was about our integrity, and we felt about where the where the value lied. But we felt about commercially prof, being profitable. Um, our fees will they will and they do go up. They go up more in line with inflation because our costs go up in inflation. Our costs do not go up in line with the, the global equity markets, and it would be you know disingenuous to suggest it does. Therefore, I want it to go up faster than anything else. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is what it is. What I would say um, overall, though, is it's almost a a red herring. Really, I know people get really excited about it and everything, but. Um, You've, you've got to realize this is a very uh, connected, joined up um, profession or proposition that we've got. And this is where the value that we really add is. Because I would far rather, if I was referring someone to another advisor, I'd rather someone was charging percentage of assets, but they had a much more appropriate, thoughtful, let's say, investment proposition or they embrace something, some form of behavioral coaching and, and have the capabilities and the experience um, and the knowledge to be able to talk clients off the ledge when they're about to self-destruct and sell their funds down to cash when there's a short-term wobble in the marketplace. So that's far more valuable and, and that's worth thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions in many cases, in some cases. So let's, let's just make sure that we're clear about the order of priorities. I'm assuming right. before having this fee debate, that you've got a, that you do planning. And I mean, real planning. You don't just, um, it's not just lip service. You don't just do some sort of high level back of, a, back of an envelope. You do detailed modeling, detailed planning. You embrace a sensible, proven, hopefully low cost investment strategy to fund the plan that you've got. And you embrace some sort of ongoing coaching and behavioral experience for the clients to make sure that they don't blow themselves up and self-destruct when just in those moments of panic. If you've got all those things in place, then we can have a conversation about the shape of your fee that. structure, both yeah. for the client, but also for you as a business and a, and a, and a business owner or someone who wants to, to grow the business. Um, and I think people have got, you know, got the whole course before the cart and get too excited about the fee structure, and they, but they, they're doing everything else wrong. The thing is, I was reading, there was an article by Bob Verse um, a while back, right? Uh, and he was saying that the way people are treating the flat fee, um, you know, conversation today is exactly the same way that um, people treated the shift from commission to um, transparent, uh, to transparent AUM fee basis. You know, like, oh, you know, this is working. Clients aren't complaining. Yeah. Why well, have we got to reinvent the wheel? So, uh, but but my question to you is, well, if if it seems to be working for you. It seems to be, I don't know, is it, you might tell me, it seems to be some kind of differentiation. 
why why advocate other people to come along why why say to other people to to join you if, well well yeah i mean it's a good question we should just keep keep, keep our mouth shut and so i can tell you we we've absolutely we have won some very significant clients over the last few years not only that wasn't the only reason but it was right. like it was a significant part in their decision making process that's the way that we approached our professional comp compensation so commercially it's attractive and i and i do feel that the direction of travel is headed that way and if and, you know I've got, it's a very small sample set but i do have re very recent evidence that, that more and more people in our target market are paying more attention to this stuff than probably than they've ever done before so we're getting inbound inquiries of people we have no connection with no historical um, contact with because because i've been a bit vocal about it over the years you know you do some google searches and i and i come up with some interviews and other stuff that we've done so people find us that way so commercially it's attractive but that's one side of it the other side is again it's it's back to this idea of a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset and i've got an abundance mindset we couldn't handle all the business you know we've, right. we've only got a limited number of clients and yes we've got ambitious growth plans but there are you know, we, you need, we all need to be in this we together. Are. Any profession that isn't evolving is dying and we're evolving. And this is just one of the many, many things that's out there that's worthy of debate and discussion. I'm not saying I'm right and everyone's wrong. Of course, I'm not far from it. I'm saying, here's something interesting. Do you want to, shall we have a conversation about it? Shall we discuss it in, in the interest of evolving and improving uh, this wonderful profession? No, brilliant stuff. Thank you very much. Let's move on now, shall we? Oh God, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So, so let, let, I want to touch briefly on technology. So, so give us a little bit of an insight into your firms. What do they call it? Tech stack. You know, what, what do you use? Well, that's what, what you, you cool kids call it, isn't it? <laughs> Tech stack. So, um, you know, we are, it's, I think we've got a, a very traditional tech stack as you call it, um, for a planning firm. Well, our, our back office system, our CRM system is Intelligent Office, I.O. Um, of course, we use Timeline, goes without saying. One of the, one of the best hey. uh, technology <laughs> systems in the world ever. Um, but you use that, and of course, that complements the, the, the sort of straight line planning experience that we do. And absolutely, that's added a ton of value. Not in every client, but in some client situations where you have to get a lot more granular, a lot more into the weeds on the detail. So you know, we, we use that. And of course, then we use the, the traditional things like Finometrica. Um, for, again, that's a whole other conversation we won't go down now. Yeah. For, for um, risk profiling, we use uh, FE, FE analytics. A um, couple of other ones that are a little bit not so mainstream that we use. Uh, relatively new innovation in, again, I'll, I'll match you on the, on the cool kid tech talk. In reg tech, we've, we've embraced some, reg, some regulatory technology reg tech um what is called, it's called the model office uh, I don't know yeah, if you know right. yeah. Model office and um we tested that again because we, you know, new things come along i, I i've got the, uh, the the classic shiny new thing syndrome of it oh that looks mm. nice that looks interesting let's have a go at that so we've um we've, we've used that which is which really helps and supports our regulatory and compliance um adherence various things if we can get the robots to do the things that the robots are good at, which is you know predominantly around data and, and information and numbers and so on, 
it allows the people to be good at what they're good at, which is being uniquely human being in front of other human beings. Let's move on. There's a lot I want to say about the tech. Oh, by the way, so so we, we should say, you know, you're, you're an investor in Timeline. Thank you very much. I, I should say I was pleasantly surprised when, when I approached you about this must be, uh, you know, over a year ago now we were raising, um, you know, the, the, the round. And you came back almost, I don't know, <laughs> like, but my question is, A, A why, why did you invest in Timeline? And B, um, do you do other sort of angel, early stage type investing personally? Um, the, the answer to your first question is, um, and it, it's for, 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 for startup businesses, um, Particularly, not not for you know large list of business. For startup businesses, you buy people. I I would buy people. Mm. Uh, I would I've seen in the past. I've looked at a number of uh, investment opportunities on a personal basis, and I've seen. I think it's quite a good idea, but I think the people don't know how to you know run a bath. Uh, so I wouldn't put my own personal my, my family's financial security at risk by doing that because I don't think the people are competent. Um, we're not here as a sort of mutual loving Abraham at the moment, but it, I believe it's because I believed in you fundamentally. I believed oh. in. I've seen you. I've known you for years. Uh, you're passionate, you're intelligent, you're thoughtful, and you're, you're ambitious. And you want to achieve good things. So that was the one thing I believed in, in you and your team. And also we were users, so I knew it. And I've, I've, we've, we've used this piece of technology. If you think about it, if, if it's, I mean, it does obviously tons of things, but it, one of the, the, the key opportunities is around the retirement planning market. Well, if you just think any, any, um, any investor or any, anyone raising money, in the investment space, you look at the addressable audience, do you? What's the addressable market? Yeah. Well, the, that market is just getting bigger. You know, the whole baby boomer generation and sort of cascading of wealth and, and retirement planning and so on and so on. There's just going to be more and more of those people around the world and, and in, in our local region. Uh, the, you know, the numbers are quite predictable and therefore you've invented and created and continue to evolve and create a very, very valuable tool that isn't generally available that you actually need to know what you're doing um, you can't you can't really sort of self-diagnose using this to the same degree. So I felt there was a very a potentially large market. There wasn't a lot of competition, um, and as, as I say, you you know you getting the opportunity to work alongside you is fantastic. So I'm I'm, I'm all in on that, and I think uh, you know I'm very comfortable with the investment that I've I've made. Uh, briefly to answer your other question, I have made other investments. Uh, I'm not um, you know whatever. Um, Jeff Bezos or anyone else, but but I've, yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm definitely not what I'm calling. I'm not an angel investor, but I've got a few investments in, and, and actually, it, it's it, they're all in a sector I know a bit about, which is is financial. So fintech businesses, one degree or another. There's, there's another very interesting one that I've put a bit of money into. Can't talk too much about it. They want to keep off the radar. I like things which are disruptive, and I think this other business that we'll all know about um, at the end of this year probably. Um, well, it is absolutely challenging. It's going to challenge the conventional structures and some, some of the very, maybe some of the larger and more tired business models and business operations that exist out there. And I, I, I'm all behind that. So I like things which are disruptive and challenging, um, where, there, where there are great people and in a, in a sector that I know, at least I know a bit about. So, so let's just try to, to wrap this up. I think I know what you're going to say about, um, you know, the, this next bit I wanted to ask you. So very very briefly so you clearly help clients with their retirement their exit strategy call it whatever you you want it sum me briefly for us um what does that look like for you surely you have 
um, some sort of exit, exit strategy as well? What, what does that look like? Um, yeah, I, I think any, it's fair to say any business that is being built always has to be built for exit. You have to be, whether you ever exit or not, that's not, mm. that's not the point. Because what it does is create disciplines within the business. It creates structures and, 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 and sort of self-analysis and discipline. So that's what we are doing now on a personal basis. Again, it's, it's funny. It's interesting. My, I'll give you an example. My old man, bless him, my dad, I was at his, I mean, you know, just in and out of um, sort of lockdowns, not, not lockdowns, but then in the autumn last year was his 80th birthday. Oh, God. He's a, and, and obviously I'm Scottish and he lives up in, in a, beautiful part of Scotland and was up there for his 80th birthday and he's full of energy and he's still in, he retired in his, 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 his work was um, real estate property and he was, you know, by many standards, he's quite successful at it. And so he was financially able to step down and retire from that activity. I mean, decades ago, decades, his probably late fifties or sixties, but he said, I had to go at golf. Didn't like that. I tried fishing, boring. <laughs> he said, I just, you know, so he's at 80, he's still running around doing all sorts of little deals and schemes. And he's, you know, I try to, you know, meet up with them. He said, I've got a few meetings, I'll call you back later. So that you recognize you get to a certain point in life and you're either someone who plans on retiring and exiting and going to the, putting your feet up and watching TV or playing golf, um, or you're somebody that just is passionate about what we do. So I have no ambition to exit, to sell or anything uh, in the foreseeable future. Things can change and health may play a part and goodness knows what else. But for the time being, we're all about growing the business in an appropriate way. If an opportunity exists for us to, to um, do some uh, joint venture work or to merge or to do other things, but we all feel it's, that it's great. The, the, the most important people here are my colleagues, my, um, the people that I work with, the people that have helped us create and build this business, um, and of course, the clients we work with. And if all of them can be um, somehow made better or there's some benefit from us, doing some sort of strategic exit or some sort of other thing, then nothing is off the table, um, provided that, you know, anything we might do retains its, its integrity uh, throughout. But for the time being, I don't want to think about that. I'm all about getting my head down and cracking on with things because we've got work to do. I, I, you know, when you were talking, came to my mind this quote, I think is attributed to Steve Jobs. It says, you know, your life, your time on, on earth is limited don't waste it, uh, you know, living somebody else's life, you know, live by your own vision. And I think you're a perfect example of that. So, Alan Smith, thank you very, very much for all that you do in the, in the industry, for the, in the profession, for the, for the families that you, you touch, and, uh, you know, for your time here and your wisdom. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Nice to see you, Abram. All the best. And that's it for this edition of Retirementals. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. 
Until next time, thank you and goodbye.